This is a Federal News Network podcast. When in 2019, Congress and the Trump administration enacted the U.S. Space Force, they left out something, a Space National Guard. After all, there's an Army and Air Force civilian auxiliary, even a Navy militia. Last month, a Biden administration policy statement came out against a Space National Guard. My next guest makes the argument in favor. Air National Guard Colonel Michael Bruno is Chief of Staff, Joint Force Headquarters, Colorado, and he joins me now. Colonel Bruno, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom, and thank you very much for having me join you. Truly appreciate the opportunity. And just a detailed question, as a colonel in the Air Guard, is that a full-time job for you, or are you also a civilian that is a colonel when you are on duty? I am a civilian who is a colonel when I am on duty. I actually work for the state of Colorado for my civilian job. Okay, well, good work. You're a public servant no matter what you're doing then, in other words. And just tell us a little bit about the Joint Force Headquarters Colorado. What happens there, and does it kind of look like it's analog in the other states? It is. So the Joint Staff, our primary duty is to provide forces to the governor for domestic operations. So we bring both the Army and the Air National Guard together, their equipment, their personnel, whenever the governor needs our support. Uh, That's our primary mission is to fulfill those needs. And do you have people doing space-type work now, people that might have done space missions in the Air Force before it moved over to the Space Force? Absolutely, we do. We not only have members that are doing space missions in the Air National Guard, but I myself am a graduated space operator. Got it. So you were in the space operations when they were still under the Air Force? Correct. We are still doing space missions today. What are some of those? What do they look like? What are some of the tasks? One of the missions is space and missile warning that is done by the 137 Space Warning Squadron out of Greeley, Colorado. The other mission is a space electromagnetic warfare squadron mission, which provides offensive and defensive counter space operations to our combatant commanders. Yes, because in its policy statement, the administration said that space is an inherently federal function. That is to say, not a state function, but what you're saying is that a lot of state-level activity happens by virtue of the people that are in the states in those uh, reserve units. And that's well said, but I want to clarify that. So the number one mission of the National Guard is our federal mission. The National Guard is organized, trained, and equipped to fight our nation's wars. We are our nation's combat reserve. And it's because of this training and our equipment that we are able to provide highly skilled and experienced forces to our governors to help save lives, mitigate suffering, and protect property. I mean, you look at it right now with the hurricane response efforts, identifying and putting out forest fires, and recently supporting our fellow citizens through our COVID response efforts. It's this dual capability that makes us unique, but it's still our federal mission that takes precedence. So is the worry then that over time, as more and more space effort moves to the Space Force and out of the Air Force, that the billets that you have that are from space operations of the Air Force will disappear and you won't have that capability? So that's an interesting question. So those billets are actually part of the Air National Guard. So the people that are sitting in those billets, if we lose our space mission, those billets will remain in the Air National Guard. Those individuals will have to cross-train into other missions. But what this does do is now U.S. Space Force is going to be required to ask Congress for a thousand additional billets to build up this force structure because these individuals won't be crossing over. 
And that's going to cause somewhere between a seven to 10 year gap in readiness because we have these highly skilled and highly trained professionals doing this mission today. We're speaking with Air National Guard Colonel Michael Bruno, Chief of Staff for the Joint Force Headquarters in Colorado. And so then let's state it clearly and plainly then, what is the need? Why should there be a Space National Guard? So a couple different reasons. First, it is that capability to provide that additional duty to our governors. But there's a second reason that a Space National Guard is right for America, and that's a straight budget argument. Space National Guard provides a real value to our taxpayers. And this lies with the uh, fact that a predominantly part-time force structure, so about 20% of the total joint force is only 4% of the DOD budget. And for space professionals alone, 67% of those professionals are part-time. So they cost one-third of what an active component costs doing the same mission. And are there also not some state space missions that you could conceive of because emergency responders sometimes use satellite communications and so forth. So could there be conceivably actually a non-federal but yet National Guard, Air National Guard related mission for the different components? Interesting you should say that. There is a current mission right now that we call Task Force Fire Guard. There's two states that are running this, California and Colorado. And what they do is they use federal assets to look down on the earth and predict and look for forest fires before they become so big they're uncontrollable. Get first responders there immediately upon ignition of those fires. So the answer is absolutely. And what are you hearing, you know, from the other units across the country, the other joint forces that are state level, similar to the one that you operate in Colorado? Do you hear from members of Congress? I mean, is there any groundswell toward this having a space guard that you're aware of? So there is a groundswell in the National Guard and in Congress and in uh, the Senate. But unfortunately, and this was uh, articulated in a letter from retired General Roy Robinson, president of the National Guard Association, that our active duty senior leaders are essentially under a gag order that they can't speak out about the National Guard. So the Office of Management and Budget my opinion, unelected federal officials believe they know more than our elected officials and our military leaders on how to best defend this country. And since their current arguments can't win on its own merits, they've placed a gag order on any dissenting views to include withholding requested reports to Congress. Interesting. So maybe it would have to initiate with Congress and maybe it's a bipartisan issue that in this case, rarely the White House wouldn't matter as much. So bipartisan is spot on. So both Senator Rubio from Florida and Senator Feinstein from California have a bipartisan bill to establish a Space National Guard right now. And you can't get much more bipartisan than that. And the main expenses then would be sort of trimmings like uniforms and signs and that kind of thing? Absolutely. We estimated it's going to cost about $250,000 which would be taken out of our current Air National Guard budget to convert our units over to space missions. Because they don't need planes and helicopters and transports and tanks and stuff that the other forces, the other National Guards need. They would just need basically computers, if I'm correct. We do have some equipment, but that equipment is already in the Air National Guard. So Air National Guard units are unit equipped. They have their own equipment. 
and the equipment they need is not like an F-16 <laughs> or a C-130, right? It is not. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Air National Guard Colonel Michael Bruno is Chief of Staff, Joint Force Headquarters, Colorado. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, and have a great rest of your day. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really, 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. 
Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.